And let's uh, pray together briefly as we uh, prepare to open the word of the Lord. God, we do praise you and thank you, Lord. We want to bless you. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word together, that you would move in us, that you would instruct us, that you would convict us of sin. That you would bring us conviction of things where we are thinking differently than we should. When we are acting differently than we should. God, I pray that you would help us as we open your word together. That we might grow to be the men and women, the boys and girls that you've called us to be. God, speak, we pray, for your People are listening. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and want to open to the passage that Brian beautifully read a few moments ago, I love, Brian, the way that you just added all the energy into that. That is, it was, it kind of came to life, didn't it? Um, and I, I do want to, my grammar teacher in high school said to never begin anything with a disclaimer. So I'm going to break his number one rule and begin with a disclaimer. Um, Friday, about midday, I was at the auto show with my daughter, Melody, spending a little time with her before she uh, headed off to college yesterday. And I had this voicemail and this text message from Morgan, the guy who was supposed to come down. And he's like, did you get my message? Call me as soon as you can. And he basically said, they booked my flight. They moved my flight to Sunday night, which, of course, is too late. And so I'm thinking, Morgan, no problem. We'll make this work. And, and he understood. He's like, I know what it's like. I feel so bad. I was like, Morgan, don't worry about it. Because he said, Morgan, you know, I know what it's like to expect to have someone else. You're not really prepared. So I had begun reading, but this is a Saturday special sermon. So this all kind of came together yesterday. I don't have fancy points for you. We're going to just walk through the text, if that's okay. It's going to be a different kind of sermon from what we usually do. So good luck taking notes. Um, but as we begin, I think it's one thing that we need to recognize is that we all like to follow people at different times. We might be motivated by curiosity. I wonder what this is like. We might be motivated by fear. Oh, I'm afraid that if I don't do this, I'm going to miss out on something. We might be motivated by, by um, ambition. We might think, oh, I want to follow this person because if I follow them, I'm going to be going somewhere. You can kind of see that in events like what happened yesterday when, when the Homes for Our Troops presented this house, this beautiful home to, to um, the Melendez-Diaz family. You have all these politicians there. And they're rejoicing in, in all the things, and they're kind of taking the praise for what they didn't do. And it's so funny to watch all that happen, but I'm, I'm grateful that they came and, and represented. But sometimes we follow people because we want to be ambitious. We want to be close to those with power. Sometimes we follow people because of knowledge. We think they know something and I don't know it. I mean, a lot of times I'll run into this on podcasts. There are certain people I really respect and I want to begin to think about scripture and about spiritual life. I want to begin to think that way. Or, or even people who are financial. I, I want to think financially the way that these people do. Sometimes we just want more information. So we follow those people. 
Sometimes our following is, is simple and non-committed. We run into that on social media. A new, new organization will pop up and you see that little button that says follow. For those of you guys who aren't on social media, it doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything. You just, it just means that you're going to get more stuff in your feed from them. But sometimes, you know, there's no real commitment. If you're going to follow someone that way, you can easily just unfollow them. There's no, no, nothing gained, nothing lost, really. Sometimes we want to follow people in groups just because we want to be in the know. But there are other times when our following results in major changes in our lives. That, that following a certain person might result in a, in a choice of degree it might impact the college that we go to. It might impact the group of friends that we hang around. It might impact the job we ultimately get. We may even follow certain people at school in order to gain influence or avoid pain. But I think whom we follow makes a difference in our lives for good or for ill. And I think as we come to this text, it's really important for us to recognize that in the, old, in the New Testament, in, the, in Scripture, in, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, rabbis would have groups of people that would follow them. These are all people who wanted to know, wanted to think about God and about Scripture the way these rabbis, um, the way they thought and the way they taught. They wanted to be spiritually minded. And so today we're going to look at some of those first followers of Jesus and how they came to follow them. And as I said, instead of dividing our, our discussion or our thinking into three or four bullet points and, and fill in the blanks, we're just going to look line by line through Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to have them open to you. So because I found out Friday, I didn't put any slides together, and Steve found out this morning that the sermon is all different from what he was prepared to push buttons for. But thanks for being ready, Steve. I appreciate it. So if you have your copy of God's word and let's let's begin in uh, John chapter one, verse thirty five and the apostle John writes the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Now, we have to remember that up to this point in the book of John, what we got was an introduction to Jesus in the first 18 verses. We got slightly introduced to John the Baptist. And then last week, we we got to see more fully John the Baptist and it's kind of a summary of his ministry. And really what has happened is John the Apostle presented two days of John's ministry. He had an inquisition and then he had a presentation of Jesus to his disciples. So now this is then the next day. This is the third day after we began seeing John and getting to know John the Baptist. And so here John is with two unnamed disciples. And according to the way John is telling the story, what happened the day before was was all those events, that inquisition, that initial presentation. And then we see in chapter one, verses 36 and 37. It says, "And, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, I wish I could do it like Brian said, behold, look, the Lamb of God. Two disciples, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed jesus so again john points out to these disciples he and he's telling remember his whole ministry was about pointing people to jesus preparing for the one who would come he and in fact we saw last week his his response when the religious leader said who are you why are you doing these things his response was i am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness make make straight the way of the lord 
And so again, John is pointing his disciples, pointing his people to Jesus. And now that Jesus is coming onto the scene, John's making it very clear what Jesus' role would be and what his own would not be. And I think it's important to note that discipleship was and is a big deal in Jerusalem, but I think it's even, or in Judaism at that time, and I think it's even a a more important issue for us in Christianity. You see, it was not uncommon for religious leaders to have students following them, and it's almost as though John, as he's leading and teaching these two men among others, he's pointing them to the ultimate object of their faith. John was not concerned about his own ego. John was not concerned about his own number of followers. He didn't care how many likes or hits or followers he got on his social media page. Because for him, it was all about Jesus. And so these disciples hear John's testimony about Jesus and they seem to switch allegiance. And they begin following a new rabbi. Look at verse 38. So they they start following Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following him. And said to them, what are you seeking? You see, in the first century, it was often up to the student to seek out the teacher. And we see this in many ways in in higher education. I have a good friend of mine who's working on his Ph.D., and he wants to, he's doing his PhD on some Reformation things, and he's going to study with a guy who knows everything there is to know, at least that we can know, about Martin Luther. So he's, he sought out this teacher and is doing his PhD work with this guy who, knows, who did his work on, on Martin Luther because my friend is doing work in a very similar area. And so the same type of thing is that back then they would follow, they would seek out a teacher in order to learn from them, seek out a rabbi. So Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And so they respond not with what they're looking for, but they respond with another question. Look at what it says in 38. It says, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They're not interested in a quick answer. They're not asking for an interpretation of the law on some issue. They're not interested in finding out the eschatological view of of Jesus on such and such a fine, minute detail of doctrine. They want to be with him. They want to know where he's staying. They want to sit down and get to know this rabbi, this lamb of God. And so in verse 39, Jesus says to them, he says, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So Jesus invites them. You know, we we don't get any details into where exactly they are, where Jesus was staying at that time. All he said was come. Let's sit down and, and Scripture tells us it was about the 10th hour, which in our timeline would be about 4 p.m. And so um, they were there the the rest of the day. And and I don't want to read into this too much, but it seems like there are some cultural elements at work here. These two unnamed disciples seem to understand that the answers to their questions will not be addressed in a short conversation. It won't happen in a text message or a tweet or a post on Facebook. And for that matter, they might not even know what questions they need to ask. All they know is that this is the one they should be following. This attitude toward hospitality, because they realize that it's going to take time to understand what 
Jesus is all about. So they're willing to give up whatever was on their schedule that night and, and spend time with him. And I think this attitude toward hospitality and investment of time is lost in our Western culture. We want quick answers to shallow questions and sometimes fail to invest the time needed to get to know one another and get to know the real issues. We fail to slow down enough just to be. I once heard someone comment about a trip that he made to Europe and he was meeting, this man was meeting with a few other people and they were meeting at a restaurant. They were going to, I don't remember what they were going to talk about. But they all got seated as about four or five people and the waiter came up to them and said, what can I get you? What, what would you like to order? And the host, the man leading the meeting basically said, well, we'll take some drinks now. We'll, and after about an hour, we'll order our meal. And, I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very clock driven. I'm OK. I've got this point, this appointment, this appointment, that, 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 that. And I'm thinking, oh. And he said, no, we're just going to take it easy. We're just going to converse. We're going to be with one another. And then we'll eat. Because if you've ever eaten with me, you'll know. My family will tell you I'm the first one done. Eating doesn't take very long with me. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to invest that kind of time with Jesus? And I know it's like, well, how do we do that? Well, there's time in the Word. There's time just thinking and reflecting, meditating on what's going on in the world, what his word is saying, what he's instructing us. And I got to tell you, I'm not there. I'll listen to scripture while I'm walking and sit down and go through the few other devotional things that I'm working on. And then I got to wake up Zoe and then it's boom, 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 it's the day is ahead. But I think we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to leave enough margin in life? to have those long kind of conversations with other people. I think the, the other day the Holy Spirit gave me a, one of those divine opportunities. I was on my way to pick up Zoe from the carpool, bringing her home from school. and I happened to run into Harris Teeter and happened to see someone that I hadn't seen in a while. And so we struck up a conversation for 10 or 15 minutes and we realized quickly that that could have turned into an hour. Except he had to go somewhere and I had to go get Zoe. But do we have the kind of margin to, to pour into other people the way that they might need? Or are we so busy, so after getting it done, that we fail to realize the important things are the people that are around us? These guys knew that Jesus was that kind of person that they needed to spend time with. And Jesus knew that he needed to invest in them. Oh, that we would bask in the knowledge of our Savior. Oh, that we would slow down and learn. Oh, that we would leave space to just listen and to be. And so in verse 40, John continues. The Apostle John writes, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And so the author finally gives us a little bit of knowledge into who these two unnamed guys are. In fact, well, I find it so funny that he can't just name Andrew, Andrew. He has to name Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who we don't even know who Simon Peter is. 
So it makes you wonder, why did John write it that way? And I think it's because all of his initial audience, they knew Simon Peter. They knew this guy. They didn't have any idea who Andrew was. But now we finally, you know, so Andrew knows, um, it seems that Andrew understands just how important and special Jesus is. And he doesn't want to keep this opportunity to himself. He knows his brother needs to hear what this Messiah has to say. Milne, one of the commentators I was reading about, wrote this. He said, Here lies the secret of the extraordinary spread of Christianity in the early centuries. As a historian Gibbon noted, it became the most sacred duty of the new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives the inestimable, inestimable, inestimable blessings that he had received. Andrew knew he was going to get something special. And so he said, Simon, you got to come. You got to join me in this. And so in verse 42, it says he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so Jesus sees Simon and changes his name to Peter, which is Peter in Greek and Cephas is Aramaic. And they both mean rock. And I think one of the things that we find interesting in the book of John is there's all this kind of double meaning throughout the book. And Peter's name has some significance. In fact, when I first think of Peter and Rock being together, I'm actually drawn back to Matthew uh, chapter 16 when Jesus is with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And, and he asks them the question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they're giving him all these answers. And, and then he says, well, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter being the big mouth that he is, he says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And at that point, Jesus said, you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, not so much the rock of Peter, but the rock of your confession of faith, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, be, um, will not go against it. But that's not John's gospel. So that's, I think for me, the first thing that I have in my mind. But one of the things that we get to see in John is that Peter, yeah, his name means rock. And we'll see later on, he has a huge influence in the early part of the church. But Peter was also a bit hard-headed. In fact, time and time again... Peter is pushing against Jesus. He's resisting what Jesus wants to do. He's telling Jesus no. He's rebelling against some specific commands that Jesus is saying. And in fact, right after that conversation in Matthew 16, Jesus starts telling him, hey, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, 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 no. This is not going to happen. And Jesus turns and gives Peter another name and calls him Satan and says, get behind me. And then, of course, Peter's the one who denies Jesus three times. Peter's the one that Jesus goes back to after his resurrection, and we'll see this in a bunch of weeks later on. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. And it's like over and over and over again. It's like that. Have you seen that illustration of, of the rock with the dripping water on it? Right? It's just time and time and time. And Peter's a bit like that. He's like this hard-headed rock, but once he gets it, he gets it. And I hope that for you and me, we can find some encouragement and hope in the example of someone 
like Peter and the way that Jesus worked with him. We may not get it the first time or the second time or the third time or the 500th time that we're reading and trying to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, but I hope that this will not cause us to give up pursuing Jesus, that we will let his word and his teachings permeate and penetrate our hard heads and our hard hearts. And so it seems by the end of this day, there are now three disciples following Jesus, Andrew, Peter, and some unnamed disciples. We still don't know who that is. And so there's a new section in my Bible, but it, the whole thing that we're going to consider continues. Look in your Bibles at verse, 30, at verse 43 of chapter 1. And so John writes, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, frankly, very little is known about Philip. We get introduced to him here. In fact, later on, we're going to learn a bit more about Philip through as we read through the rest of the book of John. It's clear that he's one of the twelve. He's part of that inner circle of guys who were, who were faithful and followed with him. But there's an interesting element in the calling of Philip. In fact, one commentator noted that in most religions and in Judaism, the student, as I said, would seek out the teacher. But in this case, Jesus seeks out Philip. And he says, you follow me. You come with me. It is Jesus who is doing the initiating. And there is a sense in which none of us can truly seek Jesus. Our natural bent, our heart's bent is angled away from from god and as we walk through life and experience pain we encounter someone who introduces elements of faith to us they become like little pebbles that get locked in our shoes have you ever had that you're kind of walking with sandals and and you're walking i hate that when that happens a pebble gets in there and you you can't walk right and if you've got tight shoes on like i do today you, you it's just hard to get your shoe back on when you're going to take the pebble out but, but sometimes I think what happens is those little things, those testimonies, that, that problem, that challenge, that word that we'll hear from someone become like that pebble. We have to bend down, take off our shoe, and look at that pebble, and we begin to realize, oh, there is a God. Oh, Jesus is someone cool. I need to pay attention to what's... Am I being called to do something here? Kevin DeYoung talks about those pebbles as being... A calling for us to investigate. Calling for non-believers to investigate more about what's going on. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ, and if, uh, I want to ask you, have you really taken time to consider the spiritual pebbles that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is placing in your spiritual shoes? Have you considered the suffering that you're going through? Have you considered the turmoil that you might be facing? Have you considered some of those deep questions of faith? of life. It could be that he's calling you to walk with him, to learn from him, to be with him for eternity. So I want to encourage you, don't just keep walking on that pebble. Take it out, examine it. Let's talk about it together. Get together with someone who's sitting around you or someone that you know is a follower of Christ. Say, help me understand what is going on. 
And so Jesus sees Philip along the way to Galilee and calls him. And in verse 45, John writes, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, we don't exactly know what Philip had heard from Jesus or the other followers at this point, but it was clear that it was enough for him to begin to connect the dots. He knew his Old Testament scripture enough. He knew that Moses had written about a prophet who would come. He knew that all the prophets were writing about someone who would come. And he's like, oh, this guy is that guy. And he said, Nathaniel, we gotta, you got to come. He doesn't give him a special title. He simply calls him Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then I love what happens next. Look in verse 36. Nathanael says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. You know, I guess that Nazareth was not highly respected in that day. And Nathanael may have not been speaking from so much from biblical knowledge, but just from prejudice. He, he had already prejudged that, ooh, Nazareth. I mean, we all have those things. We all have those groups of people. We all have those people who are associated with this place and that place. And, and we think, ooh. And, and yet Philip says, come and work beyond your prejudice. Come and check it out. See the truth. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary wrote this. He said, honest inquiry is, this, is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Let me read that again. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. He continues, Nazareth might not have been all that Nathaniel thought, but there is an exception to prove every rule, and what an exception these men found. They found the, ex- the ultimate exception in Jesus Christ. You see, I've heard at different times people have comments, they have thoughts of who we are as a Baptist church, who we are as Poolsville Baptist Church. There are some people who think whatever they want to think. Some people may have been hurt by words that have been poorly spoken. Others feel that we're bigoted or narrow-minded. Whether or not they're true, I think it's important that we... Well, one, if they are true, then we need to repent of that and become the people that God has called us to be. But I think more often than not, those prejudices are preconceived notions and ideas misconceptions that they have of maybe who we were but who we aren't now so i think when we engage with folks and not so much about our church but more about christianity more about jesus i pray that when we come across folks who have preconceived ideas about our faith that we would invite them hey come and see come and investigate come and learn it's not what you think it's better. It's more glorious. Yeah, we're not perfect, and we are still a work in process, a work in progress. We're being sanctified and refined individually and corporately. But I pray that we can help people push beyond prejudices. I pray, more importantly, that we would not give them any reason to think that we are anything other than sinners saved by grace who are seeking to let other people know. Even as we talked about last week, a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody. 
And so Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus, and in John chapter 1, verse 47 to 49, it continues. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so this little exchange, in this little exchange, Jesus seems to communicate to Nathanael that he has some inside knowledge, that he, being divine, could know something that he could not have known otherwise. And it made an immediate impact in Nathanael, caused him to want to follow Jesus. And it seems that to step into faith on what felt, he seems to step into faith on what felt like a divine encounter or a miracle. And I tell you, there are some people who come to faith on miracles. But one, one thing that we have to recognize is that miracles can be a shaky foundation because if we're always looking for a sign, then when that sign doesn't come, do we really have our faith established? And so I pray that if, if it's a dream or if it's something fantastic or miraculous like that, that God calls us out of darkness, that we will have our faith firmly established on the Word of God, faith firmly established on what God has done in His church and His people. And so Jesus responds to Nathaniel in the last two verses that we're going to look at today. He says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What an interesting way to just end this chapter, this pericope, this little segment. And it's difficult to know exactly what Jesus is referring to. I think, is he thinking about something on the Mount of Transfiguration that we're going to see later? Is he thinking about something that we don't really get insight into in, in Scripture? But I think one point that we can glean from this is that in our journey with Jesus, it will be so much more than we expected. It'll be so much greater and more profound than what we think. We will encounter richness, the richness and depth of his love in profound ways. And we will come to realize that Jesus is who he says he is and so much more. And so as we close, I, I realize walking through the text this way is different from how we usually do this. I realize for those of you note takers that want fill in the blanks, it's hard to, well, what do you take notes on in that? And that's okay, I get it. But as we close, I want to make a couple of points for us to ponder and Ask a couple of questions for us to think about. And the first thing is this. We have to recognize that following Jesus results in a new calling, a new vocation, a new goal in life. Following Jesus changes the entire trajectory of our lives. We may see this a bit more in the other gospel accounts, but following Jesus changes everything. These guys who were fishermen became followers of him. They became his disciples. And now we don't even really know them as fishermen. In fact, I believe a lot of them became known as the church, early church fathers to those first Christians. Following Jesus changes our perspectives, purposes, and even our plans. Were they planning on going to Galilee when they started following him? But secondly, following Jesus requires a new leader. 
John's disciples ultimately had to leave him in order to follow Jesus. And in order to truly follow Jesus, we have to follow him. And I know you think, well, yeah, Joel, you just said that. Follow Jesus. Yeah, we have to follow him. But I think we can't follow fakes or ideas about him. And there are so many people in our culture today, we think, oh, Jesus wouldn't want this. Jesus would want me to be happy. Well, did Jesus say that? And I think it's important for us, if we're going to follow him, that we understand what following him means. Because Jesus is way more concerned about our holiness than he is about our happiness. And following Jesus, finally... We have to recognize it's ultimately initiated by him. Jesus starts the process. He does it in miraculous ways like he did with Nathaniel. He does it in mysterious ways. He does it through relationships, through circumstances and more. He uses the Holy Spirit to draw us. It's something that Jesus is going to introduce to us later on as we continue to study the book of John. But let me close with a couple of questions. The first is, who are you following? Are you following Jesus or are you following someone else? Are you truly following him or are you just following ideas about him? About what you hope Jesus is kind of sort of like? Are the humans you're following leading you toward Jesus or away from him? And finally, who is following you? Who is following you? Because ultimately, God called us to be disciple makers. As parents, what are we doing to direct our children and our grandchildren toward Jesus? Are we leading our friends or coworkers toward him or toward something else, toward success or achievement or financial security or pleasure? And students, let me just encourage you. Being a disciple maker isn't something that is reserved for adults. You can make a difference among your friends by being faithful, by faithfully following Jesus. And let me encourage you to do that. And if you want to talk more about how to do that, students, just talk to your parents, talk to someone around you, talk talk to me. We'll work through what that looks like at school. But I want to encourage all of us These men, these first five guys that we get to meet, these first five disciples were radically changed by Jesus because they chose to respond to his call to follow him. And I wonder how much we've been changed. Is our faith just kind of a comfortable add-on? Or is it the core of who we are? Is it who Jesus, are we the people that Jesus is calling us to be? Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the example of John as he called people to follow Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, all that you did and taught and the way that you worked in the world. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, when there are those places in our lives when, when we haven't submitted everything to you, Lord, Forgive us. Help us to be faithful in every part of our lives. Help us to follow you wholly. 
And as people follow us, Lord, help us to lead them to you fully. We need your help. We need you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, to guide us and help us in this endeavor. Amen. Amen.